Hello, Jimmy Famarewa here. Welcome to another very special episode of Life on a Plate, the podcast from Waitrose. This is the podcast where we talk to a whole range of fantastic guests from many walks of life, asking what food really means to them and finding out in the process the role it plays in their lives and all of ours. For this episode, we will be celebrating some of the more memorable parts of the conversations we've already had on Life on the Plate, some of our greatest hits. And I'm very pleased to say that I'm joined, as ever, by my co-host, Alison Okavy. What an absolute joy to be able to say those words again. (laughs) Alison, how are you? I'm all right, Jimmy. How are you? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. It's, It's lovely to see you. I feel like, you know, when we're kind of chatting. All is well in the world. We're kind of just, you know, nosing around about lunch. But obviously, I am also a little bit sad. It's tinged with sadness today because, drum roll, I, as you know, obviously, Mm. and uh, the listeners may not, this is going to be my last episode of Life on a Plate, which is, you know... very sad to even say those words. It's really sad. In fact, I'm actually quite gutted you're going. <laughs> That's the preferred way round you'd want it. I mean, if you were kind of discreetly popping, popping some champagne <laughs> and dancing around, that'd be uh, a that worry. Quite, but... That'd be a little bit of a worry. But um, yeah, I'm gutted too. And the reason is, it sounds quite dramatic, but it's just that thing of having a big project a big writing project starting Mm. up and I just wasn't able to quite do both things which was like a real wrench for me it was a really difficult decision because of what we've done with this podcast and the great times we've had but yeah I'm um, I'm moving on to something that um, hasn't been announced yet which is why I'm sort of being sort of a bit cagey and mysterious about it but it will be announced in due course but the important thing to mention is that it's not the end of the show of course it's not the end of the show Mm. I'm really going to miss working with you because I've really loved working with you since the start of the year but we do of course have a fantastic new host all lined up and all will be revealed when season four kicks off in October but yeah I'm going to miss our weekly chats and uh, catch-ups I have learned so many things about you Alison (laughs) some of which were kind of off my that we never got a chance to go back to that just left me staggered. One of them, you are or used to be really well, into skydiving. Your face that week is a picture <laughs> when I talked about I just, just skydiving and jumping out of planes. It was like, is she for real? <laughs> I just like I, so yeah, I was, it just didn't, it kind of I was simul I was simultaneously really surprised and shocked. And also, <laughs> oh of course. You know, what else has Alison got in there? Um, But yes, I've been privy to who the new host is and Mm. it's really exciting. I'm excited of moving to the other side and getting to be a fan and getting to be a listener and just listen to the guests you've got coming up and the conversations you have. But before that, we have assembled, just to kind of celebrate and cap off this era, we have kind of been through the archives and the many, many conversations that we've had with so many notable, fascinating people that were just so honest and so generous with their time. And we've picked some of our favourite moments to just kind of revisit and just tee things up as Life on a Plate moves on to uh, this new, exciting phase. It's been really great listening to the archive because we've had, you know, chefs, food writers, actors, campaigners, 
musicians and writers and comedians. You know, it's just been such a wide range of guests and the stories that have been told. It's really hard to know where to start. I think what better way to start than right at the beginning of our kind of life on a plate journey with our very first guest, the iconic Bake Off winner and prolific cookbook writer, Nadia Hussain. We really did start at the top, didn't we, with her? We did, yeah. She was so inspiring and just had got so much to say. It was great. She joined us back in January for an incredibly heartfelt conversation about life pre and post Bake Off. And she also told us the story of how she came to be entered to the show mm. without her knowledge. And so this is how it all began for her. It wasn't something that I'd ever intended to do. So, like, I, I didn't apply for Bake Off myself. It was my husband that yes, had yeah. done the application. So I'm like, who does that? Like, I think that's <laughs> the most bizarre thing for any human. Because I was, I think at that point when, when he'd applied, I was at my lowest in terms of my mental health. And I was really struggling to kind of, I suppose, almost find myself again. Because somewhere between um, being married and having children and being a stay-at-home mom, I'd kind of lost myself a little bit or um I was desperate I, and and, I'd, and and I suppose for him he'd seen that I'd lost the will to find myself and I think that's where it really got him and he just thought there was a time when you you get lost but you you're, you're desperate to find yourself but I'd, I'd then given up and said yeah I'm not even willing anymore to to find the lost version of myself so I think it really upset him and I think it really I think it was something that was um that was affecting him and he just said as I spent more time in bed and less time with the children and more kind of in, became more insular, he just said, I think you need to do something for you. And so he put the application in. And I don't know where the common sense is in that, because I don't see how being at the worst in my mental health at that point to then say, I'm going to put you on the biggest baking show in the country. <laughs> I, can't, I can't see how that yeah. clicked in his mind. But he, he, for some reason, he decided that that would be the right thing to do. And I said, yeah, yeah, look, I'll do it, but I won't get in. And that'll upset me and that'll hurt me. And then that will just trigger something else entirely. And he said, no, 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 it'll be fine, it'll be fine. I managed to get in. And I, and, and I kind of look back at that moment. And I think anyone who suffers with, a mental, health, uh, with mental health issues or knows someone, I think when people watched me, they saw whatever it was that I wasn't willing to speak out about. And I know in that moment, when I look back from, look back five years ago, I still can't fully watch that end bit because like the mixture, the mixture of the music and my sobbing face and my children's voices in the back really can really, I mean, it really, I, I even now I can feel my jaw tightening up as I say it, because for me, because that moment was much more than cake. It wasn't about winning a competition. Nobody really saw how often I was falling apart only to be picked back up every single week to allow myself to believe that I could do that. You know, that was hard. That was that was a that was a difficult 10 weeks that my children experienced, that I experienced and my husband experienced. And collectively, we were on that journey together. But ultimately, when I got on that train and went to the tent every weekend, I was really fighting myself to get through those weeks and to get to week 10, which I still call week 10. And my husband says, it's the final. There's no week 11. You can't call it week 10. And even now I still can't call it the final. And I look back and I think my life has changed so much in those five years that often I go back to remind myself of who I was. And, and, I, and I do find myself visiting her and I find myself 
comforting her and reminding her that actually it's going to be okay. I really love that episode. I love the way she, you know, she told us about the fact that she got kids to do the cleaning on a Sunday morning. <laughs> yes. And they yeah. did it. It was just yeah. great. She's just kind of relentlessly honest in a really amazing and inspiring way. And she's so kind of personable, which I don't think everyone has. And like, you know, she's been through this incredible experience and become so well known and become so beloved but it it feels like it's only made her more candid and want to share more about her life and kind of more relatable in that strange way but bake off has been a real theme throughout the seasons actually hasn't it yeah yeah it completely has and it's kind of it's run through a number of the different episodes um nadia was just one of many bake-off stars that's joined us on life on a plate more recently we were joined by 2012 bake-off winner john Waite, who is taking part in strictly this year as one half of the first ever all-male dance couple it's incredible it really is it's, he, i mean he is he is such a, a lovely man and it's fantastic news we've worked with john over the years in for waitrose he's written recipes for us and at the time when we recorded with john we had him writing a recipe for a pride cake in mm. june and you know on the podcast he opened up about what pride meant for him We wanted to celebrate, you know, the LGBTQI plus community. We wanted to celebrate queerness. We wanted to celebrate diversity because, you know, growing up in a conservative farming background for me, as I've said, you know, it was it was very difficult to to embrace uh, sexualities and cultures and all of that. You know, it was kind of it was it was a taboo to even talk about that kind of thing. And as I've come on this, I hate this phrase so much, but spirit, spiritual journey, you know, as I've, as, as I've grown up, I've realized that being queer and embracing that is such an important thing. Yeah. And, and pride, you know, I used to think pride was just a big throbbing drunken festival. <laughs> and you know, there is part of that to it. But mostly pride is about saying to any minority, we love you, we hear you, you are welcome here. And, you know, I, I, I can't talk about this without getting emotional because especially with the with the rainbow flag you know the the, the original emblem of of, of 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 the gay community and the queer community was a pink triangle mm. which was what was sewn onto the outfits of of prisoners in the in in nazi germany you know queer prisoners and we embraced that for a long time in our community um and then after the 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 riots which started the, the gay pride events worldwide, a guy called Gilbert Baker in San Francisco redesigned what the gay flag would be, and that is the the rainbow flag. And that has recently undergone a bit more of a transformation to be even more inclusive. Mm. And mm. you know, only in the past few years have I seen that flag as a life raft. You know, it is about identity and about acceptance and about love. And it's, it's, it's getting rid of that little voice in my head from when I was a child that would say, don't be too gay. You know, don't do that. You've been too gay. Right. It's, it's not listening to that voice anymore. It's saying, be as gay as you want, lad. <laughs> and I'm so, I'm so proud to have been asked and, and to, to have created the recipe for Waitrose because it's a great platform to, 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 to educate people yeah. on this subject. What 
an absolute hero. I could just listen to him talk and talk. Like I just found it so inspiring what he was saying and the way in which he expressed um, the importance of pride and also throughout the interview, just kind of finding his own voice and finding his place in the baking world. Another of our guests who was similarly compassionate and wise as well um, was another baking star. And that was the finalist, Tamal Ray, who, Mm -hmm. as well as being a prolific baker and Guardian recipe columnist, is also a frontline NHS doctor. Yeah, I mean, it was great the way he spoke to us about how his life had changed after the COVID-19 pandemic had started and how baking had served as a lifeline during a year of lockdowns. I guess my day job is I'm an anaesthetist, so kind of been on the forefront of dealing with stuff with the pandemic. We had a period of a few weeks where it was just crazy, like every shift was just constant bleeps with referrals of people. Mm. Ordinarily, we would have taken them to intensive care for monitoring, mm. but just because we didn't have space, we were we were managing these people on the ward and only bringing them into intensive care when we absolutely had to. And then after that initial phase, because when people get really unwell with coronavirus, they just take ages to get better. And so it was a much calmer period at work, but just sort of a strange experience because you're actually, in some ways, we were less busy because we weren't doing our normal surgeries. So we didn't have our normal theatre lists. We were only looking after these patients Mm. in intensive care. I think it always helps like having that just that other outlets, like something completely different that's completely separate. And it's a completely separate way of thinking as well. Because medicine, you know, there are lots of things that I love about it, but it's it's definitely not creative in any way. And actually, mm. a lot of being a good doctor is about patterns and doing the same thing over and over again. Mm. Uh, and I guess baking is, to an extent, if you're following recipes, you know, the ones that relax you are the ones that you, you know so well that you could kind mm. of do them with your eyes closed without even reading the recipe book. just one part of a conversation that I really loved as it kind of balanced those both sides of Tamal's day job within the NHS and his kind of passion and what he's known for in terms of baking. And it really brought home that, you know, we recorded a lot of this podcast and and launched it throughout lockdown and throughout the kind of challenging 18 months to two years that we've just had and you know it was <laughs> it was quite interesting wasn't it to do that it was I mean there was plenty of challenges too <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah there, there were definitely some um, some less than conducive recording uh, circumstances from us and the guests but that kind of brought a real closeness I think yeah. and there were so many common threads that emerged between us and our guests as well and so many of them had to find new ways to live and work and keep themselves sane in that time. From restaurant closures to virtual cook-alongs, COVID-19 just really impacted the food and drink industry all across the UK. Did I mean, it was an incredibly tough time for restaurants. And we've chosen a clip from Sarit Packer and Itamar Shlovich, the husband and wife team behind the restaurant Honey & Co. And they just talk with such warmth and humour about what it's been like to work and live together through those lockdowns. I just, just last night, I, I didn't sleep well, so I was, I was uh, running in my head. And I thought, actually, when we came, when we first came to London, we, it was kind of like that because we didn't know anyone. We didn't have money for anything. So we were just stuck <laughs> in, a, you know, in a tiny studio apartment in Clapham North, just trying to 
past the time. That was like 15 years ago. But I think this, as a couple, this was like our forming years. So I, yeah, we, we yeah. kind of fell quite comfortably to that sort of mode of just like being in our own little bubble. It, it works for us. I don't know. No, I mean, it did. At the, at the beginning, it was like a bit of a holiday. We said, oh, this is kind of a bit like a holiday. Our restaurants are closed. Nobody can call us. Let's take a book and we'll sit on the sofa and we'll kind of read it. And that was the beginning. I think we got bored quite quickly because we did reopen <laughs> for like, uh, we started, you know, uh, doing takeaway cooking a bit for the NHS. We basically because we were bored and we had restaurants that, you know, you, we suddenly closed the doors on restaurants full of food. Mm. And we just yeah, thought, yeah. what what what's going to happen here? We don't know how long we're closing for. And there's like yeah. all these like dry stores and everything. And what are we going to do with it? So we kind of went back in and started actually like almost like a cookie factory at the beginning, wasn't it? Like people on first <laughs> lockdown were cookie obsessive. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah. We made so many cookies and, you know, we're lucky to have an online shop and stuff. And mm. like, we could not believe how many cookies and jam people were like consuming in that first <laughs> lockdown. I think the other lockdowns progressively, the food became slightly healthier, but the first one was pretty like, <laughs> yeah. so we did a lot of kind of cooking, a lot of trying to reinvent ourselves and what we're doing. And, you know, slowly bringing teams back and, and kind of, I think maybe spending more time, to, even though we do obviously spend a lot of time together, spending more time than we ever had before, really. Oh, they were such an absolute joy to talk to. Um, I absolutely love the pair of them there. Love and warmth <laughs> is just so infectious. Yeah, yeah, so great to hear it again. It really is. I love their that easy way of working together that they have. Mm. Let's go on to another amazing chef. In season one, we spoke to Tom Kerridge, head chef at the Michelin-starred Hand and Flowers, author of some very successful cookbooks, and most recently collaborator with the amazing Marcus Rashford. They work together on the brilliant full-time Instagram campaign that offers delicious and very simple recipes as part of Marcus's End Child Food Poverty campaign. Tom is a total legend and uh, back when we spoke to him, he'd recently made headlines when he brought attention to the fact that people were booking tables at restaurants and not showing up. Mm. He joined us on the podcast and talked us through that mm -hmm. and what happened when the issue of no-shows became a national debate. So I sat there and I was reading the service report for Kerridge's Bar and Grill and we had 100 people booked and it was the second Saturday of being allowed to be open. So you go, this is, you know, it's great, 100 people booked. It should normally be doing 180, so it's almost 50% down and you go, okay. But we've kind of structured, we understand what the bookings are and we made a point of going, okay. But we had something like 26 people, no show. You know, if you take that away from your infrastructure, from the food that you've bought, from, you know, the, 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 the staff that you've put in place and everything that goes in and a quarter of people don't turn up, that's, that's all the profit. That, that's a, I mean, not that you're making any profit anyway this year, but any opportunity opportunity to make any small margin it's completely disappeared you, you're now losing money there's no point in being open because these people haven't turned up and it's not the fact that they haven't turned up the issue is the fact that they haven't called to say they're not coming so you go because if they tell you they're not coming that's okay great we can resell those tables that's no you sit there with a table waiting for someone to turn up and they just no show and it turns out that it happened to so many people within hospitality that first weekend 
I mean, it obviously hit a, a big nerve and, and it got picked up national um, following and a lot of people talked about it for a couple of weeks, which was great because actually what I did do now or throughout the, re- the remainder of the summer prior to now getting to lockdown, we had very, very little in the way of no-shows and lots of other people had very little. I think it made people's conscious feel oh my God, yeah, of course I've got to tell people no. I've got to let them know. I think, so from that point of view, it was most definitely worth it. You know, I, I think it, it it got it out there. It, it made people address it and it made pe- members of the general public much more aware of actually the decisions they make will affect other people's lives and livelihoods. So there's much more to it than just going out for steak and chips now. There is actually the decision if I do or don't go will affect somebody who I may never have met before will affect their life and that's and and i think for that point of view it's most definitely the right thing to do throw it out there such an important conversation who's next jimmy well with so many of us locked down at home over the past two years staying healthy and positive became more important than ever so it was a huge honor to welcome the nation's pe teacher Joe Wicks onto the podcast. Joe made it his mission early on to keep the nation active with his upbeat exercise sessions, PE with Joe. Millions of us tuned into those every morning, uh, including me and my kids. It became a total ritual for like my wife and her family. They kind of connected mm. and it's like PE with Joe was the thing. So it was amazing to, to get to thank him for that. And uh, he was of course given an MBE for his hard work. with Joe was in the works for quite a while, wasn't it? It was something that you had been building towards for a while, right? Yeah, it looks like I had this amazing idea overnight and I just launched it and it blew up. But I really had been working on this for kind of four or five years, you know, visiting schools. I've done a couple of UK tours and I really got a sense of what young children uh, like to do, how how you can engage them in exercise. So I was all over the place, Ireland, Wales, Scotland. I went everywhere visiting schools. And my aim was to kind of do a similar thing to Jamie Oliver's school dinners. I was trying to get a TV show. I was trying to get support, but you know that, that no, no one had the budget and they just didn't have the time for it at the, at the, at the moment in time. Um, mm. And then when I launched PE with Joe, obviously I had built so much trust around working out with kids and always being positive and sharing good content. And people knew, parents and teachers knew that when I went live on 9am that morning, that I was going to deliver a safe, fun, friendly workout. I wasn't going to swear. And I think that, that was because I built that, that community and brand trust over so many years um so every newsletter in the uk every school newsletter every twitter account every you know media outlets helped me promote that and help me share those workouts and and that's the reason it got so many views and i think yeah that was something that i i truly believed that i was going to achieve that i just thought it was going to take me 10 years i truly thought i'll do a, <laughs> yeah. i'll do a jamie oliver style campaign i might do some kind of government initiatives but then PE with Joe happened and it was like my whole dream came true it manifested in like such a short time after that episode I had been inspired by him to do one of his hit workouts because I don't have children so I hadn't been doing PE with Joe so I did one of his hit workouts and man I could feel it in my muscles for a couple of days afterwards you know they seem innocent (laughs) they are 
pretty brutal, but um, he's such a lovely and genuine bloke that the the trouble is you just kind of get swept along with his enthusiasm. Yeah, you do. Uh, yeah, and that's the danger, as you have learned the hard way. Now, keeping fit, uh, really quite incredibly fit, is something that our next guest knows a great deal about. Uh, Hannah Cockcroft is one of Britain's most successful Paralympians having uh, won even more golds at the 2021 Paralympics. I think she mm. got like her seventh gold <laughs> and broke another world record because that's just what she does. She spoke to us about how she first learned to embrace life in a wheelchair. And she kind of took us back to the beginning of that yeah. journey and the struggle she had as a kid and how she kind of found real sort of empowerment and freedom. Yeah, she just was great. She's so down to earth and just so single-minded and driven to compete. And that's, you know, shown in the wins. I remember asking her about where she kept all her medals and, <laughs> yeah. and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't about displaying them or anything like that. It was all about competing. I had two heart attacks when I was born. Mm. So that left me with multiple areas of brain damage and then like damaged nerve endings, which then as I grew left me with deformed feet, deformed legs and, and having to use a wheelchair. And doctors told my mum and dad that I would never walk and there was a potential that I'd never talk, which is something they wish was true every single day. Um, <laughs> but here I am. Um, and you know what? Mum and dads are amazing people. They like, they took this on board and they said, you know what, like, we'll just see what she can do. We're not going to wrap her in bubble wrap. We're just going to let her do whatever she says. So I took my th my first steps at uh, three years old. And yeah, I went to mainstream schools. I've got two brothers. Um, I've got an older brother and a younger brother. So yeah. literally okay. just followed my older brother around, yeah. much to his disgust. <laughs> uh, everyone knew that I was Josh's sister. And um, so yeah, I went to mainstream schools and... You know what? I had a I had a great childhood, I had an amazing childhood. I was never treated any different. I was never bullied. The only thing I couldn't do was sport. You know, PE for me was it was sitting in the library, it was doing homework, it was reading a book, it was never getting involved. And I don't I don't blame the schools for that. You know, I don't blame my school or my teachers. It was a lack of education. It was yeah, a lack yeah, of abilities, it's and isn't it? Yeah, it, it's everything like that. But mm. because I was surrounded by able-bodied people I just I, I didn't want to use my wheelchair I hated the wheelchair growing up because it, it made me feel different and I realize obviously now how much easier it would have made my life but at the time in my head I was like I want to look like everybody else I yeah, want to course, I want to do what everyone else does so yeah. I first saw Parasport uh, when I was 12 years old the local wheelchair basketball team came into my school to do a demo uh, up until that point, I'd never met another disabled person. I had no idea what the Paralympics were. I lived in a very able-bodied world, which is not a bad thing. And I just saw these guys in these wheelchairs that looked so different to mine. You know, I was I was in a NHS, massive, clunky thing that I couldn't push myself. I wasn't strong enough to push it. And these guys came in and they could wheelie and they were just so agile and fast. It was amazing. I just immediately knew that that's what I wanted to do. So they came in, they did the demo that night. My dad walked me to the coach's house and said, like, what does she need to do to join? And that was it. I played for the Cardinals for the next six years. And then, yeah, I tried military racing when I was 15. And I think I'd always been, I loved basketball. 
I absolutely adored it, but I was the only girl. When I went to racing, it was like, it was, it was just me. Whatever happened, it was just me. And I had independence for the first time and I had freedom ultimately. That is my overriding feeling when I'm in the race chair. I have freedom. What an inspiration she is. She was absolutely hilarious too, which um, I possibly wasn't expecting because I thought, you know, she's so driven and so committed. But yeah, she was very funny and just talking about how she has pudding with every meal. So (laughs) we instantly liked her because of that. Yeah, exactly. And uh, here on Life on a Plate, we've been lucky enough to be joined by some very funny people, uh, Mm. including some of the country's funniest food-obsessed comedians. Yeah, we've laughed a lot. We're going to listen to a couple of them again. First up is stand-up comedian Tom Allen, who told us what it was like feeling like an outsider as he grew up. always felt like I'd been an outsider and a bit of an eccentric and I'd at times done really odd things and behaved in sort of strange ways as a teenager in suburbia and I thought actually I'm going to write it all down in all its kind of cringing Mm. detail and so I wrote it down I thought people might go what the hell are you talking about you are a very strange person but happily in a way I've come to realize that lots of people have gone oh I had exactly the same experience or I had a very similar time it (laughs) has a bit more for me it suddenly was like oh I see now why I did that like as a teenager I was being picked on at school and people I wasn't out or anything but people were saying like oh you're gay and I remember being beaten up for it and um and I was like, I'm trying to hide it. Um, I don't know how they know. But um, at the same time, I was like, I thought rather than trying to sort of assimilate and blend in and, and not, you know, not get picked on anymore, I th- stumbled upon this Julie Walters monologue that Alan Bennett had written about in Talking Heads. And so for the school cabaret, I decided this was what I had to do for no real reason. It didn't make any sense like to anybody. And the teacher was like, why? Why are you doing this? Like, you don't, you know, it doesn't. And, um, and there was no sort of means of kind of like researching or like finding out what to wear or anything. Because, you know, you know, she's, it's, and it's, a, it's a monologue. It's a really beautiful monologue, but sad. I mean, totally inappropriate for someone in year nine to do in a school cabaret. But I was like, no, I have to do it. I just love it. But and then when I wrote it down, and my editor said, "So after that, you know, do you want to write about how like you knew who you were then, and people left you alone, and they respected you?" And I was like, "No, because they didn't." Just like <laughs> yeah. you know, they yeah. just yeah. carried on being odd and strange and and an outsider, and and just sort of learned to embrace it more. I suppose that's what came of it, really. Absolutely love that interview. Definitely one to go back to. Yeah, he is uh, just so kind of perceptive and so funny and kind of that whole notion of embracing Mm. your strangeness was really good. And another great comedian to join us on the podcast was the brilliant Sarah Millican, who was the second ever guest on Life on a Plate. She talked to us about the eating habits of a touring comedian and why you shouldn't shy away from having a slice of cake if it will make you happy. There's apps now where you can just order food from a proper restaurant and it's not just 
you know, what can we manage with today? It's actually proper good food, you know, really nice food. So we do, you know, and then obviously I know restaurant food is full of sugar and butter and salt and that's why it's so delicious. <laughs> you always gain gain weight on tour to hopefully lose it in the gap to gain it again. That's always the plan. Western Super May has a special place in my heart because we found takeaway roasts that would deliver any day. Not So not not a Sunday, it was a Wednesday and we had a roast oh, delivered to us. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't elaborate. It was fairly simple, but it's always stuck in my mind. And when I look at my new tour and I look and I go, oh, two nights in Western Superman, <laughs> smashing. <laughs> That's two roast dinners. But on tour, we make sure we have a really good breakfast, which is usually brunch by the time we get up because we've got in really late. Uh, and because we have that shifted body clock which we still have even when we're not working it's just so ingrained to go to bed at two o'clock and to get up at 10 o'clock and and often I'll say to my dad oh I've just had my lunch and he's like it's three and I'm like yeah that's lunchtime is three and then even a meal <laughs> is eight and then off we go again uh, so we'll have a really good uh, brunch and then we'll have something at the venue and then the rule is if you are on the coast you are allowed chips after the gig and luckily <laughs> we are quite a small island with quite a big coastline <laughs> I suppose it's everything in moderation to a degree, but I think after 2020, I'm not sure everything in moderation counts anymore. I think uh, I know for a fact that when, you know, life opens up again and things are normal in inverted commas, whatever that is for you, uh, I know that I will be moving around a lot more and I know that I will be exercising more and I know that I will be living on the road, but I will be like, oh, you know, we've been a bit sweet today. Let's have some fruit instead. And like, when you're in such an extreme situation as we have been over, you know, this last 12 months, I think if having a little cake makes you happy have the cake oh my god just have the cake words to live by there definitely she's just <laughs> fantastic isn't she just amazingly down to earth so normal so generous with her time very funny and a lover of cake which she you know, certainly tick was. tick tick but that, that's what a lot of our guests have. They've combined that real down-to-earth, unpretentious quality with a strong element of being absolutely exceptional in some way. It's what makes them so relatable and uh, inspiring. Yeah, it was it was great to see people that have completely excelled and are kind of at the top of their game with their guard down a little bit and just talking about food in that really personable way and showing off their passions. And uh, the perfect example of that is our next and final clip. One of our favourite guests to grace the podcast was the <laughs> absolute human whirlwind that is Andy Oliver, who I think in her first moments fell she off fell her off chair, the stool. <laughs> started laughing. <laughs> <laughs> and we were just hooked from there. She was just so much fun. But as well as talking about her days as a teenage punk and her early memories of food, uh, she talks about how she ended up as the host of Great British Menu. about taking on the new role on, on GBM. I was a bit, I had a little bit of trepidation about it because... Mm. Why, why was that? Well, for a start, 
I love sitting in between Oliver and Matthew. It's one of the most hilarious days of the week. Sit a couple of hours in between Oliver and Matthew, argue with, arguing with them about food is just a lot of fun. It really, yeah. really is because I was a judge initially. I was a judge initially for the first couple of years and then Patrick Holland at BBC uh, called me up and said, would I do it? And I said, no. No, actually, they asked me to do it and I said no. And then Patrick called me. Patrick Holland runs right, BBC well. Two and said, please. And I said, well, and I also... Not just what I was worried about missing the boys, but I also thought, actually, uh, I'm not a comedian. And, I, you know, before Susan had done it, she's very, very funny. Susan Cummins, she's very, very funny. So I was a bit like, mm, I'm not really going to be funny to order. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I, I like to have a laugh yeah. with people, but I'm not like jokey, jokey. And, um, and then I also was concerned that I didn't want to lose any sense of authority because I also think it's important that there is a a, a woman of colour yes. on TV in the food industry uh, with authority yeah, yeah. and and mm. I think that's a really important position to hold and I take it very seriously I just think that you know our industry I love our industry but it's incredibly white and it's incredibly male driven so uh, you know and, and also age wise I'm 58 years old I just turned 58 so a, a woman of my age uh, of colour in a position of authority in our industry I just thought it's really really important that I didn't lose that position so I was concerned about that I was concerned about that but actually what I realized and what Patrick said to me is like no I just want you to expand your role I want you to to broaden mm. it out I want you to connect more with the chefs and do yeah. more things so I was like okay when you put if you put it like that <laughs> I'll do it so so I said yes and I'm really really glad that I did because I I I enjoyed the Christmas series and the last series so, mm. so much. Engaging with all of the chefs on their entire journey with the dish, the evolution of each dish, seeing... I mean, they work so incredibly hard. And these are people at the top of their game, you know what I mean? They all are. What a fantastic and inspiring woman she is. She was awesome. She was awesome. But then all of our guests have been awesome. There was just an edited highlight of some of the fantastic people we've spoken to. Yeah, we could have chosen so many more. It was quite sort of agonising to her to whittle it down. Um, Dolly Alderton was incredible. Heston Blumenthal, Candice Carty-Williams, Adjarando from Bridgerton and Roger Daltrey telling us about his trout fishing and yeah there were so many people that kind of I feel really let us in into their worlds and into their lives and into their appetites in such a in such a generous and fascinating way. Asma Khan in a building site of her restaurant <laughs> that was reopening it was yes. amazing. Yeah it really feels like we've been in the moment and mm. we have just kind of had such such kind of rewarding conversations. I think about things that we've talked about all the time throughout the course of these conversations and it kind of reframes the way you think about people the way you think about food and I hope if a few people that have listened have come away from that with the same feeling then then we've then we've done our job and there's a lot more to come and uh, I look forward to hearing them yes season four will be launching soon and we've got some brilliant guests lined up oh man jealous 
I've changed yeah. my mind. I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. And um, thank you for being such a brilliant co-host, Alison. Um, I wouldn't have wanted to have these conversations with anyone oh. else. Uh, it's been so much fun. It's been an absolute hoot. It's been so enriching in so many ways. And uh, I'm so grateful. And I look forward to seeing what you do next. Uh, And thank you to all our listeners for helping to make Life on a Plate such a success so far. People have really reached out and uh, just responded to it in the best possible way. It's been an amazing gift to be able to share these chats with people. And yeah, it's uh, I'm going to miss it enormously. So thank you and goodbye for now. Goodbye. I'm Jimmy Famarewa, and you've been listening to me, my co-host Alison Okavy, and a compilation of highlights from the first three seasons of Life on a Plate, the podcast from Waitrose. If you like what you've heard, you can find the full episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to hit follow to keep up to date with future episodes. To learn more about the series, go to waitrose.com forward slash podcast. Podcast.